Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I'm so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with Katerina Jerenik on the groundbreaking photographer Francesca Woodman. But before we start, I'm so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www.alighieri.com co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week their founder Rosh Patani will be giving us an insight into Alighieri and I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a really exciting week for us here in the Alighieri studio because March the 25th marks National Dante Day created in celebration of the incredible poet Dante Alighieri on whom we've based our entire brand. It's amazing to think that it's been 700 years since the passing of Dante, and yet his story in the Divine Comedy is just as pertinent for us in 2021. He writes essentially about a man lost in a dark wood, trying to make his way through. It does feel a bit like we might have all been a little bit lost over the last year. Here's to looking ahead to the realms of Paradiso and the light on the horizon. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that today on the Great Woman Artist podcast, we are speaking with renowned artist, writer and curator Katerina Jerenik. Based in New York City, Jerenik is the collections curator for the Woodman Family Foundation, where she also serves on the board. She was the curator of the estate of Francesca Woodman for more than a decade prior, during which time she was instrumental in organising an array of acclaimed international exhibitions of and historic important publications on Woodman's work. Most recently, during the last years of their lives, Jerenik managed the studio of Betty and George Woodman, the acclaimed ceramicist and painter, and the parents of the late and great photographer Francesca Woodman, who I'm so delighted is the artist who we'll be discussing today. Katerina Jerenik, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really Really glad to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure to speak with you about Francesca Woodman's work. I mean, Francesca Woodman is an artist I have been familiar with for a number of years. And every time I see one of her works, I am just completely entranced. They feel like something from another world or this kind of hybrid between two worlds. They're kind of at once ethereal and haunting, whilst also sort of confronting and confident. I mean, for someone who made such a vast 
body of work at such a young age and nearly 50 years ago now. I mean, they feel so fresh and sort of direct. It's just incredible. So I'd just love to start off by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted with a photograph by Francesca Woodman? I mean, I think that you raise a really excellent point about Francesca's work and how much it embodies contradiction. I mean, she is both vulnerable and powerful. She's the model. She's the photographer. They feel really personal, but I think they're also really allegorical. And I think the fact that they feel so open and they feel so of their time and outside of their time makes them endure to people and also makes them feel so personal to people. They seem deeply felt, but they are also actually really intellectually and formally rigorous at the same time. So there's so much there that we, I think, often think would contradict each other, but it's all embodied in her work. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're just so, you know, to think that someone so young created this such vast body of work. I mean, so much of it as well. I'm around things like 800 photographs in her life. And they're just sort of enraptured the viewer. They just spark so many narrative stories, but also kind of mindsets. I think that that's where their sort of power comes to. I mean, can you tell us about maybe one work in particular and why it affects you so much? Well, it's really hard to pick. One yeah. work. <laughs> I mean, the photographs in the glass case where there's these sort of bodies exploring the limits of that space, they're inside of it, they're outside of it. They're really, I think, looking at how space and that shape and that form is defined. But there's also one in that series where Francesca, she adopts a really different attitude to the rest of the works in that group. All of those works were made in the, the nature lab at RISD, where she was a student at the time, the Rhode Island School of Design, when I say RISD. It's just the shorthand. They were all made in the nature lab, which was available to students oh, wow. to study and use as props in their work. One photograph that really stands out to me from that group is where she has her face and her hands really pressed up against the case. And she is on the outside. And on the inside of the case is this massive, I guess it must be like a, the jawbone of a whale. And the way yeah. she sort of arranged her mouth and her face, it's really almost mimicking that specimen. You know, there's also this aspect of that photograph and her work in general, where she plays a lot with still life and props that kind of contrasts the very live movement of her body and her actions with these really static still life objects that are really also kind of symbolic within art history and the whole idea of what still life means or memento mori. And you know, it's also, it's amusing. I mean, she's sort of imitating this, <laughs> yeah. this thing. And I think when you look at Francesca's work, when you really look at what she's doing, there's a lot of wit in her work. And she's really mm. observing the world. And I wouldn't say imitating it, but sort of responding to it in these really inventive yeah. ways. But this work, I'll share it in the show notes for our audience, but I'd actually never seen this work before that you said from the Space Square series. And I was just completely in awe of it. I think what's amazing about these works, I mean, first of all, if anyone's seen them in real life, they're on such such a small scale. So when you do see a Francesca Woodman in a museum, you have to go right up to it. It's only only one person can be in front of them at the same time, which I think is a kind of really beautiful thing because you're just so kind of at one with this work. And that work, I mean, there's just so much going on. It almost looks like this kind of stage set. I mean, it's so theatrical. And then you have the kind of panes of light that are mirroring off each other. And it's just, it kind of glistens almost. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's incredible how just one image, one sort of flat image, and, and you know, it's so hard to do this in photography. And there are like sort of 
a handful of photographers who can do this and Francesca is one of them and just kind of create so many narratives within the mm-hmm. narrative and then you kind of have this because I actually when you sent it to me as well I didn't realize that I thought she was actually inside the case <laughs> but now but now I see that she's, she's behind it. Up yeah. it yeah exactly exactly well I'm glad that I could introduce you to that photograph <laughs> but I mean you've worked so closely with the estate for such a number of years now I mean what drew you to kind of working with Francesca specifically I actually first started working with Francesca's work. Actually, I'd seen it for the first time in 99. It's called Mirror Images, Women's Surrealism and Representation. And I saw that at SFMOMA in 99. And that was also around the time Cartier Foundation show was touring all over Europe and that catalog was circulating. So I sort of knew her work and I really admired it. And some years later, when I was in graduate school, that's when I began working with Francesca's estate. And I met Betty and George then. They needed somebody to sort of help them just couple days a week with loans and correspondence and things like that. You know, I really liked her work, but I really knew nothing about it at that point. But as I began to work with this work, I also came to realize, you know, what a privilege it is to really get to know an artist's work so in depth, to be able to look at it day after day and really try to see what it was that she was doing, not what I kind of thought that she was doing. And I think these are the things that really sort of drew me in and that I found so compelling about her work. It often feels so personal to people for the reasons that it's so beautiful and it's really, it seems vulnerable and sincere and you have to really get close up to it. So I was sort of amazed by it in this opportunity that I had to really learn about it. You know, I also really began to get to know Betty and George at that time, her parents, and I really respected and admired what they wanted to do for her. I mean, they clearly loved their daughter deeply. And they, as artists themselves, really could understand how important it is to have one's work in the world and have it be known and enjoyed by other people. And one of the things that we're so lucky to have as one of the resources of the foundation, in addition to artworks, is this trove of archival material. And we're in the middle of processing. Eventually, we're going to have a study center open to scholars and curators. But in the meantime, as we're processing it, I've been doing some research into Francesca's papers and her own words and writing about her work. I found some things that Francesca really observed and understood and was intending to do in her work that I actually think are really connected to people's response to it. But the way that she described what she was doing was that she wanted it to be allegorical. She was really influenced by literature. I think Francesca knew what she was doing. I think she had a lot of ideas about what she was doing and what she wanted her work to be. And I think when you sort of see the shifts in her work from the time that she was in Providence to how Rome affected her work and then to the work she was making after in in, in New York. There is this thread that is not about her unfettered self-expression, but I think that people, because there's this this sort of open-ended and contradictory nature to a lot of her images, I think people can project whatever it is they have onto her work. It's also, it's really beautiful. It's deeply pleasurable to look at her work. Yeah. 
absolutely. So I'd love to go into her childhood. I mean, so Francesca Woodman was born in Colorado and Denver in 1958. I mean, you mentioned earlier that her parents are Betty and George Woodman. I mean, what sort of environment did she grow up in? I mean, who were her family? You know, was art something that was always present in her life? Yeah, absolutely. She was born into a family of artists. Her father, George, was a painter who was really heavily influenced by minimalism early in his career. He was also a photographer and a writer, and he taught art in the philosophy of art at University of Colorado. And her mother, Betty, who I'm sure many of the audience here know, worked in ceramics. She began as a functional potter, but really she went on to create a really ambitious and complex body of sculpture in ceramics. Her older brother, Charles, is also an artist. He works in film and video and electronic media. George and Betty both took their work really seriously, and they took each other's work really seriously. I mean, I knew them for quite a long time and sort of have learned about this dynamic between them that really was about respecting each other as artists and respecting each other's work. I think that she grew up in a family that really believed that. And I think she learned probably by watching her parents what it meant to be an artist and the commitment and the dedication involved. I think Betty and George had a really active social life. It was Boulder, Colorado, which is actually the town where they lived. It was a pretty progressive, dynamic town that was really centered on the university, especially then in the 60s. A lot of her friends were the children of other professors. There were always visiting artists coming to town. Didn't David Hockney or Richard Serra come or something? Uh, Yes, (laughs) yes. So, I mean, I think the art department at University of Colorado was really active. (laughs) You know, Saul LeWitt came. Oh my God. There was a lot happening. And I think Francesca sort of grew up in the middle of all of this and you know Betty's pottery studio was behind the house and so her studio practice and all of that was also just very much a part of daily life totally but also I think if, if anyone knows Betty Woodman's work and I urge you all to look it up but you know it, it also when you look at her work or you go to one of her exhibitions I remember her incredible exhibition at the ICA a few years ago here in London and it just kind of encompasses you you know these are ceramics that are probably functional but they're also wall pieces and they're also kind of floor pieces and I can imagine that they would have grown up and I mean I've, I've seen pictures of their Italian house and it's just kind of ceramics absolutely everywhere so I'm sure art consumed Francesca's kind of early environment. Well I mean it's funny to say that too because because during Francesca's childhood, she was still really focused on making functional work. I mean, Betty had this very Bauhaus idea of you have to make beautiful things for people to use and it will improve their lives. So she, this is the environment Francesca grew up in with these kind of ideas being talked about. She would have these twice yearly studio sales in their yard and the whole yard would be filled with these tables of cups and bowls. So talk about being all-encompassing. These were sort of big events that took over the house when they happened. Yeah. And so then in 1968, I mean, they purchased this house in Antella near Florence, and then the family would spend their summers from there on. But I mean, am I right in thinking that Francesca actually lived there for a year when she was about seven or something? I mean, how did somewhere like Italy shape her work? Betty actually went to Italy for the first time by herself in 1951. So she had this relationship with Italy. The family first went 
together in 1959, 1960. Francesco was just a baby then, and they went for a year. But I think the year that really sort of led to this ongoing Italian relationship in all of the Woodman's life was 65, 66, when Betty was there on a Fulbright and George had a faculty fellowship. That period is also when they found this farmhouse. George had I think he had an NEA grant and they decided to use the money to buy the house in (laughs) in Antella. Amazing. That was in 1968 and they continued to go back there every summer while the kids were young. But Francesca sort of grew up going to Italy for part of every year. And I think that Italy felt like a natural place for her to be. You know, it's interesting, you ask how it affected her work. And I think that in some ways, because of her experience, Growing up, going to Italy, going to museums, being left to draw or find what she was interested in from a young age. Betty and George had things they wanted to look at in museums. They would take their children to museums. Just sort of this kind of comfort and ease with that place. Again, I think perhaps it was something she didn't think about so consciously until after she left. And one reason I think this is because I have found these sort of snippets of correspondence and I found draft of an application of her own for a Fulbright fellowship when she was in New York and she sort of talks about the influence of Italy on her work and I've sort of found these in my early archival research and I'd maybe like to just share a few of her words. Yeah, of course. In the Fulbright draft that I mentioned, I just want to read you what she wrote. Okay, so this is in 1980 from New York. She writes, although I spent a good part of my childhood in Italy, it was not until 1977 to 78 when I spent a year in Rome as part of the European Honors Program of the Rhode Island School of Design that I tried to consciously explore through my artwork the counterbalance of the staid layers of Italy's art history and the chaos of religion, culture, and politics today. The year in Rome spurred a whole train of artworks ranging from a series of notebooks, of photographs playing with themes common to Italian art history, such as angels, annunciations, and odalesques, and using antique Italian school children's notebooks as a base to the temple, a major piece completed in New York this year. With a Fulbright grant, I would continue my investigation into this dichotomy. I would like to make a series of platinum prints of the farmhouse facades to which painted windows have been added to bring them, mostly unconsciously, into classical proportion. Many of these often very personal and beautiful window paintings are fading and disappearing. And in the last decade, farmers have ceased to have them painted. So it's important that they be recorded. Oh, wow. I mean, I find that passage really compelling as a sort of reflection on what Italy meant to her in her own words, rather than me speculating about that, but also to sort of see where her ideas were going. I think Francesca, from reading this work and knowing, I I think she really saw the work that she was making as really being in dialogue with art history. She wanted to speak to that. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, I love this idea that she went to these museums and I've also heard that, you know, Betty has also once recalled how Francesca, you know, would make friends with the guards and sort of museums <laughs> in Florence and wants to take pictures of the museum after it shut. I mean, I love this idea that she's this girl with a camera. I mean, when did she sort of first pick up the camera? Because there's this absolutely fantastic from 1972, age 13, a self-portrait, mm-hmm. which I think must have been taken while the family are in Italy. And it's it's so evocative of the work that she's kind of about mm-hmm. to make. 
I mean, how does this self-portrait speak to you? I think that is a really significant image for a lot of reasons too, including what you said. It sort of foreshadows what she's doing. You know, Francesca was interested in photography. George gave her a camera and she actually went to boarding school around the same time in Massachusetts. What she really wanted to be studying there was photography. And she worked with this photographer, Wendy Snyder McNeil, who really became an important mentor for her and also later taught at RISD. So they sort of continued this relationship. But one of the things that I understand that she was doing was to sort of articulate to figure out what her vision was as an artist. And I think that this self-portrait at 13 really just sort of encompasses what her work went on to become. I mean, it's a self-portrait, but her face is totally obscured. I mean, what is it that she's revealing or not revealing about herself? Like in a way, you know, it's kind of status as a self-portrait is pretty funny and also quite sophisticated (laughs) for somebody of that age. I mean, the cable release feature so prominently in the work and you know she really was interested in what photographs could do I mean probably not super consciously at age 13 but I think that the presence of this cable release sort of foreshadows how much her work was also about what photography could do and couldn't do and I also think that she seems really powerful to me in that photograph which I think the way that she engages with the camera in other images, I mean, here she's hiding her face from our view. In other images, the way that she sort of looks right at us and confronts us is is a different knowingness that she has. But I think, to me, it announces how she's in control of the image and is showing us what she wants to show us. But I do also want to emphasize, because I do think there's sort of this mistaken impression of Francesca that she was sort of naive and didn't really know what she was doing. But the fact that it introduces all these themes and ideas that she then really carries through and explores in incredibly sophisticated ways in her later work. I think she really understood what she wanted to do. Totally. I mean, you know, it's so fascinating to hear that she was already interested in photography when she was even at school and she already had a sort of photographic mentor because, I mean, this must have been a kind of maybe the sort of cusp of 1970 or something. I mean, how much would she have known about photography? I mean, was photography a big thing then? I mean, it must have been a kind of, you know, quite obscure medium that people were using and not just kind of the thing that you just have in your art classroom? I mean, I think in the 70s, photography in the US at least, it was really a kind of flowering period for photography. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. I mean, if, if you think <laughs> of it in that way, and I think that is when people started to take photography more seriously in the context of other art mediums. Also, Francesca, again, she was the daughter of an art professor. She sat in on some photography classes because she was interested in it. You know, George yeah. gave her a camera. I mean, I think she she couldn't be a painter. She didn't want to be because her father was, her mother worked in ceramics. I mean, he gave yeah. her this camera and it was interesting to her enough that she wanted to pursue it. You know, she went to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, which is and was also particularly at that time, one of the best art schools in the country. And so, I mean, looking at her works just from this time as well, I mean, you know, 1975 and 76, I mean, she's she must be what, sort of a, maybe 17, 18 or something at this point. And, and already, I mean, I know that we've just seen her 
photograph of when she was 13. But I mean, even here, I mean, they're so advanced. I'm thinking of something like the sort of house series, something like House Number 4, Providence, Rhode Island, 1975 to 76. And the way that she is kind of putting herself as the kind of object and the subject and you know she's hiding behind this sort of fireplace and it almost looks quite kind of animalistic or something it's not a sort of beautiful nude it's a sort of totally different take on I guess the nude I mean it's it's unlike anything I've ever seen especially from this time I mean can you tell us about the kind of work that she started to do at Rhode Island how did her work develop here? I think the house series is a really interesting example my impression of this work. She was a very sort of keen observer of her surroundings. She saw spaces and the world around her as opportunities for making work. You know, this work has been talked about as, is she disappearing into the space? You could also say that she's really coming out of it. She's emerging out of it. There's this sort of open-endedness to what's happening. She's sort of merging with the space or emerging from the space. Yeah. And I think that kind of open-endedness is also why they're so curious and they endure to so many people. And again, I just want to emphasize that series of images, I think, were also an important part of Francesca's work. And I think sometimes we see things singularly because each image is so powerful on its own. But when you also look at the other works in the house series, for example, there's one with the door sort of cracked open a bit and she seems to be sort of almost controlling it with her hand gestures and and looking at the camera. And so I think when you see this whole house series together, this other kind of complicated picture of what she's doing starts to emerge. Yeah. I mean, totally. I mean, I think you see this kind of narrative going on the whole time and I think it's fascinating that you emphasise the fact that she's working in series and it's like a picture novel because in a way she is kind of telling a story. I mean, they kind of remind me of, you know, Jane Eyre or something, these kind of like 19th century kind of gothic like novels where you kind of see this woman, is she there? Is she in the attic? Is she in the room? It's so dramatic. You know, even just that work house number four or something or space two series with this glass case and there's so much going on. It's sort of operatic and baroque in a way, which is why I find it so fascinating that, you know, she went somewhere like Italy between 1977 and 78. I mean, she travelled to Rome as part of her honours programme at RISD. How did her work develop here? I mean, you know, she was back in Italy. What was she looking at? Am I right in thinking that, you know, she was connected with, you know, bookshops that sold surrealist books and everything? When she was in Rome, she was fluent in Italian, having spent so yeah. much time there. This probably gave her access to the city and also sort of a, a braveness about exploring things on her own yeah. that I think, yeah. you know, was probably somewhat unique to Francesca. She met a lot of other artists there. You know, you mentioned the Maldoror Bookshop, which was run by Giuseppe Cassetti. It was filled with not just books about art, but other aspects of this literature. And, you know, I found one of her sort of blue book essay exams from an art history course. And, you know, she wrote about Man Ray. She wrote about, I mean, I think she she had this familiarity. She was aware of everyone. She was aware of a lot of, you know, what was going on contemporarily and also what sort of came just before her. And Francesca actually had her first European solo show. She'd had shows before in the U.S. She had her first European solo show at the Maldoror workshop. That's such an interesting dialogue with, you know, surrealism and her work. I think, I mean, I'm thinking of someone like Angel, Rome, Italy from 1977 is one of her most beautiful works. And the way it connects so much to surrealism, this kind of floating angel and these kind of bedsheets that act as wings or something. It's just absolutely beautiful. You know, she was really making these photographs that played on these themes in common in art history, like including the angels to think about how to make 
make something allegorical and in photography with those ideas that come from art history. She was really confronting that too. So she had her first show there and actually Edith Schloss wrote a review of the show and it was published in the International Herald Tribune. I'll just read a little brief. Edith wrote, the young American photographer who is also a painter and said she wanted to catch with photography that which cannot be caught any other way. And she expresses the evanescence and movement in consistent and unusually evocative small images, which travel beyond ordinary photography. At times, she used her own new body, jumping, curling up, or just standing next to eels or other slithering things, but without a trace of eroticism or narcissism. All the photographs are fresh, the earliest ones relying on pattern, but the latest stark and open. It's interesting to think about how her work was seen in the time that she was making it and how she really welcomed (laughs) this interpretation. I find the whole unerotic body, yet this kind of search for identity in the kind of midst of these textures as well, so fascinating. I mean, I'm thinking something like sort of self-deceit, number one from 1978. I mean, I don't know if she would have been aware of Claude Cahoon, probably not, because Claude Cahoon, their work wasn't actually kind of in sort of public. Yeah, until much later, yeah. Until much later, exactly. But I mean, I would absolutely love to see a show with someone like Francesca Woodman and Claude Cahoon, because the way they're kind of both sort of searching for identity is so fascinating like this work with her looking in the mirror I mean not only does it kind of play on these kind of two figures but just compositionally it it sort of sparks so many different sort of lines that kind of take your eye kind of all these different ways. I can think of several photographs where the resemblance is just uncanny between what Cahoon was doing what Francesca was doing. I think she was interested in surrealism. I think her work does a lot of other things outside of that but photography was particularly interesting to surrealists as well yeah although Cahoon and Francesca were not working at the same time there was something probably that they were each really responding to that overlapped over you know generations yeah and I think it's like this very private space that they both inhabit as well you know Claude Cahoon was kind of with Marcel Moore in Jersey you know they had this extremely private life where they weren't sociable at all and I mean Francesca's work it seemed I mean I don't know what she was like but they seem very sort of private and kind of in their own space and actually it's just the self in a mirror the self in this kind of abandoned room which is kind of why I come back to the idea that actually when you see them in the flesh this is like Claude Cahoon as well and it's the fact that when you get up close to them you kind of enter this private sort of language of their work and also I think the relationship of surrealism to photography in general I think some of what it was preoccupied with was also kind of presenting this alternate self or this other kind of space and that whole idea of there not sort of being one whole true self I think is a lot of kind of power of Claude Cahoon's work in a way she's sort of presenting herself in this androgynous way as a little doll you know all these sort of fictional alternate selves and in a way I think you could also Think about what Francesca may have been doing. There could be a relationship there. It could be very personal, and it could also be about describing these aspects of, you know, the hidden self or some other kind of a person. And so Francesca also travelled around Italy. Am I right in thinking her eel series were actually made in Venice? I mean, she was in Rome, but her boyfriend at the time was studying in Venice. I assume she had been there with her parents before. I know that she had been acquiring stinky fish at the market in Rome, too. She sort of saw everything as these props for her work. 
And the eels were something very specific to Venice and that floor, I understand, is also very specific to Venetian architecture. I think, again, Francesca was such a keen observer of her environment. And I would imagine that she sort of saw the opportunities for making work wherever it was that she went. The eel series and the body, there's a lot of things that are fascinating about that. And also that sort of relate to Francesca's work. I mean, she sort of blurred and moving around and here's this kind of dead fish in the bowl. But I also think it's really interesting to think about her movement and animation in relationship to it as well. I mean, what is it that appeals to you so much about that? I mean, her work is so interesting because it's in, in a way it's a bit like a sort of motion picture. Mm-hmm. It's sort of constantly in flux. And we see this girl who is, you know, coming in and out of the scene, dissolving and absolving and, you know, kind of snaking in and out of these props. And we don't really know if they're sort of part terrestrial, part celestial. There are so many different ways to interpret it. And the fact that it's also not erotic but also slightly erotic she's also in an age where she's not quite a woman and she has this kind of very childlike body that I don't think you can really ignore as well the eel series is fascinating because it just seems so haunted you're just kind of swept up in this image and, and actually I've never this is, really sounds really stupid but I always thought the eel was alive I didn't know that she went to the fish market but I think <laughs> it's fascinating that you know she was like I'll use all these different props mm-hmm. but I mean now I kind of see it differently but before I saw it as this really kind of you know on the edge of danger yeah. as well you know is this eel alive and its shape is so beautiful and sensuous and it's actually the only thing that's really properly alive and still in the image as opposed to her body that is just kind of in motion you know with this sort of slow shutter speed that blurs through this image I mean it's just evocative it's fascinating I mean and again I think this is part of the power of Francesca's work it's so evocative of all of these different narrative strains she sort of almost sets the stage with her work. Sometimes it, things unfold over a series of images, sometimes in one image. You know, this whole narrative can unfold, but I, I think that's also a testament to her skill and intelligence at what she was doing. She is really thinking about narrative and allegory in her work and trying to achieve that because I think that is also part of the power of her work is that these are photographs and it also connects to the way that we approach photographs differently than paintings and our sense of what photography is or what it's showing us and I think that is a really specific and compelling thing about Francesca's work yeah absolutely I think that there is a sort of extremely painterly quality which I think is why it's so fascinating to hear that she was so influenced by old masters and gothic literature or something I don't know they feel like this sort of dream like this sort of dream painting and she's playing with the camera in a sort of very painterly way in the sense that she doesn't want to sort of capture a snapshot she wants to create time with that if that makes sense but you know when she was at RISD, she made this incredible series, the Polka Dot series. Mm-hmm. And there's this one image that I love. It's actually kind of the one of the few images that you see actually completely of her and she is still and you actually get a sense of what she looked like. And she's wearing this almost kind of Victorian dress. I mean, I don't know if it was kind of of the time and it was like, that was the high fashions of the day, but in a way she looks like this kind of gothic maid or something who is in this kind of room that's full of rubble and they're like, oh my God, what's happened? I think that's another thing, you know, the way that she sets up her images, they're not in kind of beautiful spaces. They're in kind of creaky floorboard. It's like there's been a kind of accident there or something. And in a way, I mean, maybe you could kind of compare them to Cindy Sherman as well. There's, There's kind of like a before and a present and an after and you're not really sure who this character is, how she got there, why all the wallpaper has come off this wall or you know why there is a smash glass everywhere it really kind of makes you think about the kind of before middle and after 
if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. And I mean, I think that's the narrative power of her work and this way that leads your imagination to sort of wander into yeah, exactly yeah. what you just described. I mean, it's an amazing photograph too. And she's exposing herself in a way, partially to us. The sort of opening in her dress is also like the the opening in the wall above her. You know, yes, there's a relationship yes, yes, formally it, with the polka dot, the, that totally. big dot on the wall that's also a void her polka dot yes. dress that, you know and then and then she's just looking right at us too and crouching as well and it's kind of like about to run or about to fall or something there's this kind of hybrid again and tension but i think it's sort of all of those elaborately staged details noticing that mark in the wall what she's wearing how she's posed i don't know that if that image in particular but there's a lot of sketches in her journals of her oh, kind of really? figuring out ideas about works. I mean, there's actually a really crude sketch of the eel. I mean, there's the, it's oh, mostly wow. just visible. Here's yeah. the eel in the bowl. You know, yeah. she sort of planned her works, but also responded to that time and place. You know, we talked a little bit about the series in the glass case early at the beginning. You can look at many of her photographs and see this example, but that is a sort of particularly striking example. If you just look at the negative of that print, you can see the whole room around. It just looks like the nature lab at, at RISD. But we see it. We know it as an image and as the space that Francesca created because of the way she printed it. They're haloed and kind yeah. of it's constant black. Yeah. She burned all that in in the dark room. I mean, this is oh my it's, it's not in any way uncommon when you look at Francesca's negatives. There's rarely a straight photograph in the bunch that ends up as the final print. Oh, that makes so much sense, though, the fact that she really <laughs> kind of burns them. Because I was thinking, like, how did she get this effect? I mean, it's, it's just remarkable because it has that kind of ethereal, otherworldly quality. And I think in that way, you mentioned that her photographs seem so painterly. She knew how to manipulate the print to get the effect that she wanted. All these things suggest to me what a clear sense of what she was doing she had and what a kind of defined vision for what kind of world that she was creating with her work. Yeah, which sort of comes back again to this idea of a play. You know, she's writing the script, mm -hmm. she's sort of designing the set and then she's performing at, at the end of the day and performing can go kind of any way it happens. But I mean, she moves to New York in 1979 to pursue her photography career. I mean, what was this experience like for her? I mean, she's had this minor success at this point. She's being recognized. She's being written about in journals. I mean, how does her life change and her work change when she gets to New York? Early on in her time in New York, to me, it seems it was mainly in 1979. She was trying to get work as a fashion photographer. You know, I think she had probably learned about Deborah Turbeville when she was at RISD. She's a fashion photographer who was, you know, quite well known. And I think Francesca admired her work to see this woman who had a very defined aesthetic that was sort of not on the surface, very commercial, but yet nonetheless was supporting herself. And there's one of the artist books that she made, which seems to almost be like a portfolio to Deborah Turbeville. I think Corey Keller points this out in her essay in the SFMOMA catalog, that she had written on the front for Deborah Turbeville and then scribbled it out in pencil. And there's sort of, it's her photographs taped into this old school journal. And there's a message that says, call me as soon as you can. I'm anxiously waiting. And then she gives a phone number. I also found she sent her a postcard inviting her to her thesis exhibition at RISD. So early on, she was 
trying to put together a fashion portfolio. She assisted a fashion photographer. She was getting to know some models and trading, modeling for prints. Then she sort of did what a lot of artists do. She had a few different jobs. I mean, she had a sort of secretarial job for RISD based in New York City. She taught a photography class at a community college. But also, and I think this is really important, one of the things that I found, again, in her papers was this whole folder. This was all material filed by Francesca originally. It's applications and correspondence and, you know, letters seeking opportunities for shows, introducing herself to people. She seemed to really be trying to focus on how to build herself a career as an artist. And she was actually in a show at the Alternative Museum, which was a museum in New York City in the early 80s. It doesn't exist anymore. She was in a show there called Beyond Photography in the spring of 1980. She was also in a couple of group shows at Daniel Wolf Gallery, which is quite a prestigious gallery. She was really actively pursuing what she was doing and taking it seriously. Wow. And did she ever talk or write about what her life was like in New York? She writes this about her time in New York. She says, living here alone is so strange and I'm nervous and skitterly as it becomes more and more evident that this is what I'm going to do with my life. Devote it to the serious and very unFrancesca concerns of composition and solitude to make art. Somehow, I just don't believe that this is all happening to me. Lunch at a regular hour, sleep every night from 12 to 6. And it's really interesting to read her words about her time. I don't think New York is an easy place to be. Yeah. And particularly probably not in 1980. And being an artist isn't easy either. But, you know, she really seems to have been working hard at it. And another different letters she also wrote I do not live at all in luxury but it is apartment and you have a standing invitation to come and stay for at least a little bit I have five rooms three of them very small there is a bathroom dark room a boudoir a bedroom pink and green and a studio a study and a large kitchen every day I eat spaghetti it's my only religion <laughs> so <laughs> Oh, I love that. So it's just listening to her describe her life. Yeah. And I think, you know, that pink yeah. and green bedroom, we see it in her photographs yeah. too. The colored so. photographs. So I think she did seem to experiment a little bit with color when she was in New York, perhaps par in part related to the work she was trying to create this fashion portfolio. But I yeah. think that whole series in her apartment in the East Village in the pink and green bedroom, they feel like so much more than something that she was attempting to do to get work commercially. And it's yeah. so amazing to see how she uses color. The dress matching the wall, but then also I love the fact that the wall is also, even though it's color, it's still kind of falling apart yeah. in her kind of usual sense. And I, I'm not sure what that beautiful one, Untitled New York from mm -hmm. 1979 to 80, does that kind of just object in the corner. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, just the way that she's clutching the wall and she's got the same green on and there's just so much going on. You know, I think it's really interesting to think about the sort of change in her work after she had spent all that time in Italy, not just thinking about how Italian the pink and green feels, but thinking about the body and space, but in a more sort of architectural way. You know, I think you can also see yes. that in some of the silver prints too. But the yeah. temple is a really super interesting example of this. She actually started making this work in the winter of 1980. They're called diazotypes, but it's essentially the process that architects use to make blueprints of buildings. But she, obviously, rather than drawing, was projecting photographs onto this paper. Sometimes they were 
long overnight exposures and then processing them. She had sort of gotten to know somebody at the blueprint processing place that the architects used, and he was sort of sympathetic to her project and created this huge collage of her own idea for a temple. Also, again, really kind of experimenting with photography, but really pushing what she could do with that medium of the materials, that whole idea of her engaging with architecture and making these blueprints, but still really grounded in this idea of like the figure and the body and space and related to architecture. It's absolutely a stunning, stunning work. Yeah. I mean, to think she was kind of creating this at 22, I mean, all of this, it's really just remarkable. But I mean, in 1981, she was to commit suicide. I mean, it's just devastating. I mean, how was she during the last few years of her life? Honestly, I can't really speak to that. I mean, it is a fact of her life. And it's also it's just something that it happened. I mean, I didn't know her. I don't know what was going on. I do know she was working, though. She seemed to be really seeking opportunity. She seems to have been really excited about the work that she was doing. Yeah. And I mean... You know, just to think about the legacy that she's left behind is so huge. I mean, we spoke at the beginning about how much they kind of speak to people now. And you said when you joined the estate, even in the 2000s, she was so recognized. Mm -hmm. But I mean, after her death, how did art historians and curators react to her work? I mean, what was her legacy after she died? During her lifetime, she certainly showed her work and it was seen somewhat, but she was not a household name. She was pursuing being an artist. The way that her work really came to public knowledge wasn't until about five years after her death. Anne Gabhart, who was the director of the Wellesley College Art Museum at that time, I think she knew Betty and she went to Boulder, the University of Colorado for a semester to sort of be a special student to study with Betty. And she saw some of Francesca's work at their house and she really, I think, was astonished by it and saw how singular and significant it was. And she proposed to them to organize an exhibition of this work because she also really felt that it would resonate with the students at Wellesley College and that yeah. that would really be a good and meaningful place to have this exhibition. Yeah. And George and Betty agreed and also involved Rosalind Krauss, who was then at Hunter College in New York City. And that's sort of how that exhibition was born. And, you know, it traveled to various university art museums around the country. And that's how it began. The writing, the essays in that catalog are also really kind of important. Rosalind Krauss's essay, I think, you know, one thing that is a big takeaway for me from that essay is sort of reminding viewers that a lot of this work was made in response to assignments at art school. So, yeah, and that, yeah. you know, that, that I don't think that actually Gosh. diminishes them in any way. It's actually, this is an artist and she's actively working to become a better artist. And, yeah. you know, a lot of the work that she was doing was also really formally grounded, but then also she took those formal assignments way beyond what, you know, what anybody yeah. else was doing. Because I think that it also kind of defends them from a fair amount of writing and interpretation that followed, which really kind of mythologized her biography, yeah. tried to analyze her through her work. And I, you know, I think that's really an unfair thing to do that's often done to women artists in general and has been done to Francesca specifically. So she was an artist and she was actively pursuing the concerns of an artist. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Katerina, thank you so much for speaking with me. I mean, this is just the most incredible insight to Francesca Woodman ever. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. But... I know, I know, I know, honestly. We'll, ha- we'll have to do a part two. But as it is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if there could be anything you could say to Francesca or ask her, what would it be? You know, this is a tough one. And I did spend some time <laughs> thinking about it. Because I don't have a specific question doesn't mean that I don't have a lot of curiosity about Francesca's work. I mean, there's so many things I'm so curious about her work. And I think there's still sort of so much to learn and bring to light about her kind of greater project as an artist. It's kind of amazing to think about what she put in the world while she was here and that we can learn so much from looking at that material. I think really what I would want to say more than ask is just to tell her how much I admire the way she really took herself and her work so seriously, you know, that she really applied her intellect and her wit and her sense of beauty to what she was doing. And I think what she's left in the world is really something so remarkable well thank you so much katarina for coming on the podcast today it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me katie thank you all so much for listening to the 57th episode of the great woman artist podcast with the brilliant katarina jeronik on the outstanding photographer francesca woodman i am just in awe at woodman's work and as always have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.